You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. You can go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, we'll be in the entirety of that chapter. It's the last chapter of this book of the Bible. If you've been around for much of 2015, then you're aware that we have plowed from start to finish through this book of the Bible, which is quite amazing. And what that means is we haven't passed over, we haven't uh, glazed over the difficult text. We've talked about everything from church discipline to sexual immorality to singleness versus the married life to spiritual gifts. And what do you do with some of those gifts that some people think are, are a little bit uh, haywire, like prophecy and speaking in tongues? And, and does that come to bear in the life of the church? We've addressed some really challenging texts. And if you haven't been around, I'd encourage you to go online and, and go back and listen to the series from start to finish. And I think you'll see God's grace at work as you do that. But this morning we get to, to dive into the very last chapter of this book of the Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats nearby in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's text. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. We want you to, to own a Bible and explore the truth claims of Christianity for yourself let me just jump in and pray, and, and we'll get to work. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this letter that Paul wrote uh, to the church in Corinth, the very uh, breathed words of, of our God. Um, thank you for what you've taught us thus far, the ways that you've shaped and grown us. I pray that if there are any in this room who have uh, been a, part, a significant part of this series from start to finish and, and can't see uh, any measurable growth in their life, that um, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to stir them to ask the question, why? Uh, why is it that I've gone through an entire book of the Bible and don't feel like God's doing anything? Um, God, this is your grace to us, your word, and, and we trust and expect that you're going to move and shape us and grow us and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And pray that you would even do that this morning as we close out with the final chapter of this book of the Bible. We ask these things of you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, felt this way. When I was a kid, growing up, I remember uh, my mom grew up in a single home, just me and my mom. Um, and when, when she would leave to run to the store when I was at a, at a certain age where I could be uh, trusted not to die for a couple hours while she ran to Target, but couldn't fully be trusted with all instructions, as she would pull out of the driveway, she'd roll down the window and, and scream about 18 things at me. Hey, don't forget this, and, and be sure to, to do this, and don't do that. And, and when you read 1 Corinthians 16, that's what seems Paul's doing. There's not great cohesion to this. It's not super poetic. It's not like 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter where um, Paul gets very poetic. It, it, it's a lot like a hodgepodge. I called it during our pre-service meeting, um, uh, a fellowship potluck of Christian truth. I mean, that's what it feels like. Um, and, and, uh, and so Paul's throwing out these things that seem very disconnected. And, and so as you as you look at this passage with me this morning, I want you to just think, what is God trying to teach me? Because there's a lot of different truths in here, and there are a lot of different angles that the Holy Spirit could come at your heart as, as it pertains to a passage like this morning. And so as we dive into 
the first four verses, we first see uh, this idea of gospel generosity that Paul says, hey, don't forget to be generous in light of God's generosity towards you. He says this in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. The, the church in Jerusalem was very poor. It was made up predominantly of converted Jews. Paul sees this as an opportunity for a number of Gentile churches to be a part of helping this church made up of predominantly converted Jews, which is an opportunity to show Christian unity, to show love, to put it on display for the watching world. And you see both a global impact and an individual impact here in this passage. The global impact is seen in verse 1, where Paul says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. That one church alone can't fully advance the kingdom of God. One church on its own can't fully carry out the Great Commission as God intended it on a global level. That one church alone uh, can't fully care for every single need that presents itself in the world. That one church can't do that, nor was one church intended to do that. That burden is something that we alone can't carry. And so God is weaving us, Crosspoint Peachtree City, into this beautiful tapestry for his glory uh, that brings us alongside of a number of other gospel-centered congregations in the world, that we're not the only game in town, we're not the only game in the world, that um, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in this very city, Um, they're not enemies of ours, Uh, we need to look for ways to link uh, arms with them for the sake of the gospel whenever we can, that we have brothers and sisters uh, in this state, uh, stretched out across this country and, and even across the globe, that God is on the move, he's doing something much bigger than us, and yet he wants to involve every single one of us in that in that move that uh, he's called us to be a part of. We see that in verse 2. He says, he says this as it pertains to the individual impact. He says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. That Paul says the first day, and when he says that, he means the Lord's day. That in light of Jesus' resurrection, we talked about this in chapter 15, that Jews for several thousand years had gathered together on Saturday. But in light of Jesus rising from the grave, that shifted now to Sunday worship for Christians, and it continues on to this day. And so Paul says when you gather as the church, like we're doing uh, this very morning, he says there should be a rhythm of generosity, that, that there really shouldn't be a call to give at the end of the year. And I don't think that's what, what took place even as I gave that announcement just a moment ago. Um, that announcement was more directed toward, hey, we've been uh, in a rhythm of generosity, uh, very generous to this church, uh, many of us, uh, for 11 months. So we need to figure out a way to be able to do that in month 12 in light of the fact that we're not going to meet next Sunday. That's what that announcement was. It wasn't, hey, we haven't had this rhythm for 11 months. Uh, this church stinks at generosity. Generosity, and so we need to make up ground here so that we don't find ourselves in the hole going into 2016. That's not who we are. Um, this is actually an opportunity for me to champion the generosity of this church and say that um, God has been very gracious to move in the hearts of his people who then have been very generous so that this mission can go forth. There are a lot of churches that don't make it to their third birthday. Um, That's not uncommon for a church plant not to make it to its third birthday. By God's grace, we will celebrate our third birthday a couple months from now, and that has much to do with the people of God being generous so that the church can then go forth. And we see that, that here. 
Paul says, I don't want to have to collect an offering when I come. I, w- I want that rhythm to be in place so that when I come, it's already, it's already there. We don't have to, to do that when I arrive on the scene. And notice that he also says, each one of you is to put something aside. That Paul expect, expected every Christian in Corinth to give. It, it wasn't based on a certain tax bracket. It, was, it wasn't based on a certain level of Christian maturity. It wasn't, hey, if you're on the JV squad, you haven't gotten your letterman's jacket yet, you can just kind of table that one. But whenever we, we give you that letterman's jacket, then it's time to be generous. No, Paul says this is meant to be a rhythm in the life of every follower of Christ. It's for each of us. One of my favorite passages as it pertains to generosity is found in the other letter that we have to the saints of Corinth in, in our Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It's up on the screen. It says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, okay, so these people are afflicted. They're experiencing persecution in the early church. He says, in the midst of their affliction, with a abundance of joy... Uh, in, in extreme poverty, they've seen an overflow of wealth, of generosity, that um, you might be inclined to think, well, it makes sense to me that in, in the midst of extreme joy that people would be generous. And yet Paul couples that extreme joy with extreme poverty and says that in the midst of that, they've overflowed in a wealth of generosity. And he goes on to say, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, that they, they weren't going, hey, what, what can we manage that would just eliminate faith out of the equation altogether? But rather, these were people who stepped out uh, in faith. And he goes on to say, and this is the craziest part of it, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, you just see Paul and, and the, the people coming together in, in Macedonia going, please, 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 Paul, can we please give to the work of the, of the gospel? I mean, I'm trying to envision if we just eliminated the, the offering uh, basket moving from the front of the room to the back of the room, um, what would that look like? Uh, would I get emails pleading with me to bring that back into the service? Like, can we please be a part, earnest begging to be a part of uh, seeing the gospel go forth and being generous to see that, that happen? What would compel a passage like that? And I think most of us know the answer in the room. If you read forward in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul says this. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. It's the story of Christmas. We'll talk about it a few days from now as we gather on Christmas Eve. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That you and I, if, you're, if you belong to Jesus, if you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you will be a co-heir with Christ. You've already been deemed a co-heir with Christ and you will experience all that that encompasses one day, uh, either when you die or when Jesus returns to make everything sad, untrue. The people in Macedonia understood the gospel and they said, how can we not then respond to God's generosity toward us by now being generous to see the mission of God now go forth and reach more people? That's what Paul's driving at in these first four verses that the gospel as Christ has been generous to us compels us to be generous so that more people might meet Jesus as his kingdom is advanced. Paul then goes on as he's pulling out of the proverbial driveway to say, hey, make gospel-centered decisions. Make sure that your decisions are saturated in the gospel. Verse 5, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you 
uh, now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. That First of all, in verse 5, Paul drives at this idea of making plans with the glory of God in mind. He, said, he, he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend, I intend to pass through Macedonia. That Paul has clear intentions in mind. He has plans to go a certain route. His ultimate aim is to share the gospel with people. And he knows that that can't happen if he sits paralyzed, afraid to move until God writes his will in the clouds or on the wall in a dream. Uh, A lot of young 20-somethings are stuck, uh, are paralyzed in this way of thinking. And I've experienced it myself personally. So I identify with it uh, that we struggle. We're paralyzed to take the next step in life because we're afraid that we're somehow going to step out of God's will and screw up our lives. And the reality is, if you have God's glory as your aim and you're in line with the scriptures, then, then just do something for the glory of God. Just, just get after it. There's a great book um, by Kevin DeYoung entitled Just Do Something. And if that's you, if you find yourself paralyzed as it pertains to, to taking steps forward in life for the glory of God, I would implore you to get your hands on that book. I think you can get it for less than 10 bucks on Amazon, two-day shipping. So you can even do that right now if you want to look at your phone. Uh, That's one of the few times that I'll encourage you to do that. Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. I promise you, uh, if you read it with uh, an open heart, it will remove the paralysis from your life and allow you to to then take risks for God's glory um, as you move forward. Paul makes plans, but yet Paul also is open to God-glorifying interruptions. Verse 7, he says, I hope to spend some time with you if, if the Lord permits. That Paul says, I've got my plans, and they're not for the purpose of self-glorification. They're, they're with the glory of God in mind. And so I'm going to move forward with those plans. But if God has other plans, I'm not holding on to my plans with such white-knuckled fists that he's unable to move, that, that some of us have determined exactly how our lives are going to unfold, especially those of us in the room who have a root idol of control that we battle with, that for some of us, if we're honest, there's very little room for the third person of the Godhead to move in our lives, the Holy Spirit, namely. That for some of us, our lives scream, no holy interruptions, God. I've got my plans, and they must come to fruition. And the reality is, that's bondage. That's just as much bondage, living your life and only taking steps that you can control. That's just as much of a life of bondage and paralysis as the person who doesn't take a step at all because they're they're afraid to move forward in life, afraid they're going to screw the whole thing up. That, that we must make our plans in life for the glory of God as our aim, and we must also be open to divine interruptions as God moves and works in our lives. We bend, we flex, because he's God and we're not. And then you also see in verses 8 and 9 this idea even of God-glorifying rootedness. That Paul says, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries that uh, Paul was in Ephesus at the time. He saw the gospel going forth, and, and, he, and he said, you know what? I, I don't know that I need to move. I don't know that I need to take the next step. Right here where I am, God is using me, and he has great purpose in what he's doing with me. That, that sometimes the best thing that we can do, the most God-glorifying that we can do, is to stay right where we are. 
right? We live in a culture that, that says on to the next thing, on to the next city, on to the next job, on to the next relationship, on to the next church. And, and sometimes those, those decisions, those transitions uh, are the right thing to do. Sometimes they do honor God to, to make those shifts in life. But we really do need to sit with the question, is God finished with me here as it pertains to work, as it pertains to relationships that we're surrounded by, um, as it pertains to the very city that we live in, as it pertains to the church that we're a part of. Is God finished with me here? Do I see ways that he can use me for the sake of the gospel? Paul asked that type of question, and it directed him to stick around for a little bit longer. That some of us, he may be calling us to establish ourselves, ourselves with more roots in the ground rather than looking for the next Thing in life, the next best thing. And notice that um, this is really odd in verse 9 that Paul sees adversaries and, and he, he sees opposition and he doesn't uh, then leverage that as a reason to leave, right? Many of us, when, when the rubber meets the road, when things get hard, it, it's time to flee, it's time to run. And yet Paul sees adversaries, he sees great opposition and he goes, you know what, I, I think I need to stay and that's a reason why. Because I have a, a vision for something better for this city. I have a vision for something better for these people. And what that means is that in the midst of um, adversity, in the midst of opposition, I'm going to stick and, and, and I'm going to plow through that. And, and we're going to watch the gates of hell come tumbling down as the church moves forward. That's Paul's vision. And so he chooses to stay. He continues... And again, you see kind of the the disconnect of some of these topics. He moves on in verses 10 through 12 to address this idea of gospel partnerships. He says this in verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Um, Notice these two New Testament passages. I'm going to take you out of 1 Corinthians for a second. And I want you to see if you see similarities between what I'm about to show you and verses 10 and 11 in this morning's passage. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, it's up on the screen. Paul says this. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. That Paul says where you see uh, leaders laboring in the gospel, laboring among you to make much of Christ, respect those leaders, esteem those leaders very highly in love. This aligns with what Paul says in verse 10 of this morning's passage. He says, Timothy is doing the work of the Lord, which is why you should put him at ease when he's among you, which is why no one should despise him and should help him on his way. Another verse that aligns with this morning's passage. Many of you have read this one somewhere along the way. First Timothy 4.12, Paul's actually talking to Timothy directly here. He says this, he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That word despise means to, to ignore, to, to treat as lacking authority or value. That aligns with verse 11 here where Paul says, let no one despise Timothy, that Timothy loves the gospel. He's laboring among you to make much of Jesus. You might be inclined to dismiss him because he's a young guy, but that's not God honoring. That, that where you, Crosspoint Peachtree City, see leaders laboring among you to make much of Jesus, to make Christ ultimate, that you should love, respect, 
honor those leaders, encourage those leaders. It's difficult to, to lead a particular flock of, of God's people. Leaders need encouragement. Leaders need support. And so uh, there, there should be that element that comes to bear in the life of, of the body of Christ. He goes on in verse 12 to bring an old character back to bear. If, you, if you've been around since the beginning of this study through 1 Corinthians, he says in verse 12, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Do you see a conflict here? Paul says, hey, I urged this guy to come in your direction, and he determined that now's not the time for that to happen. There's a clear differing of ideas. There's a clear differing of vision. There's a clear differing of strategy here. But notice what Paul does. If you remember, if you were around in the beginning, in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, there's great division in the church. That's what Paul's addressing through much of this letter. The people are screaming, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. Well, I follow Peter. Well, you know what? I don't follow any of those those guys. I don't follow uh, any sort of church authority. I follow Jesus alone. And so you have these people crying out that they follow their certain leaders And notice what Paul does here, that yes, there's a a differing uh, of ideas, of strategy, of vision, but what does Paul do? He says, now concerning our brother, Apollos, that for some of us, the application this morning is that we need to use language that's more unified and and have our hearts attached to those very words, that, that we're more unified as a people rather than contributing to divisiveness in the church to be more unified in the way we talk to and about people in the church, whether they're around or not, that, that they're your brothers and sisters in the faith, that, that turning your weapon on those you're in the trenches with is senseless. We do it all the time in the church, and the devil loves it because it makes his job really easy. Doesn't mean we have to agree on every detail of the Christian life and how it's to be lived. Doesn't mean we have to agree on every detail of what it means to be the church and see the church go forward. But Paul understands at the end of the day that a brother is a brother is a brother and a sister is a sister is a sister. Can't say it enough. You're you're not, if you look around this morning, you're not surrounded by church attendees. You're surrounded by eternal siblings. That's crazy. He goes on in verses 13 through 14. This is where it sounds like the real intensity ensues as he, he's pulling out of the proverbial driveway. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Saying, don't forget to, be sure to, be watchful. This could mean a, a couple of different things. It could mean be on guard with the gospel, protect the church from false teaching. Could also mean be watchful for the return of Jesus. Anticipate that. Expect Jesus to return, which will shape the way that you live and the way the mission goes forth as God uses you. Either way, it's a life lived which is on alert, which is on guard, which is awake. A life that anticipates, going back to the last few weeks, a life that expects God to move. And not just when we gather as the church, but, but as we disperse as the church. He says, don't forget to stand firm in the faith that your faithfulness is going to be tested by something. Don't allow that something to win. Persevere in your faith. Fight the good fight until the end. Run the race to the finish line. He says, don't forget to act like men, to be strong. Um, I don't know about you guys, but um, I've noticed that when someone says, when, when the phrase comes out of someone's mouth, he's just a kid, or she's just a kid, that the age attached to a phrase like that is slowly increasing culturally over the course of time. 
that um, if my granddad, uh, well, well, let me let me take you here first. Um, for those sports fanatics in the room, uh, there's a guy by the name of Johnny Manziel. He he used to be uh, the quarterback of Texas A&M. Uh, he's gone on now to be uh, become the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns. It's uh, amazing to me that the guy's even still. Uh, even still has a job. Uh, when he was in college, uh, he did a number of things that were illegal. Um, he did a number of things that were not illegal, but were highly unethical. And at one point, as reporters addressed him, one of his responses to the reporters was this. He said, I'm just a 20-year-old college kid. Throw me a bone. I'm just a 20-year-old college kid. Now, I'm trying to envision my granddad saying to my great-granddad at the age of 20, in the midst of, of just, you know, flying off of his rocker, doing something stupid, um, proverbially going off to Vegas, you know, saying to my great-granddad, give me a break. I'm just a 20-year-old kid. That would not have flown in my great-granddad's house. That would not have worked under his roof. And yet, slowly but surely, we're, we're moving in the direction of, oh, just, just cut them some slack. They're in their young 20s. They haven't figured it out yet. And, and we're slowly moving toward, oh, cut him a break. He, he's 29. He's not in his 30s yet. And, and it just grows and grows and grows. It gets, it gets larger and larger and larger, the age that's attached to those types of statements. Paul's saying, don't act like a child. Grow up. Be a grown up. Be a man of God. Be a woman of God. You're in a war for your soul and the souls of others. So fight. Wage war. Don't give up the fight. Act with courage. Act with strength, knowing that you're on the winning side. We've been told for 15 chapters that Jesus is going to win. You're on the winning side. So the fight that you fight is not in vain, Paul says. And then he goes on to say something really strange. Don't forget to let all that you do be done in love. Now, that's not strange in light of chapter 13, where he drives at love um, for, for an entire chapter, but it's strange in light that he's just declared, be strong. Because for many of us, culturally, we, we attach strength with chauvinism, with aggression. And so Paul's saying, no, the, those are not antithetical. They're, they're not at odds with one another. That, that strength and love actually go together. Um, and, and using the language of chapter 13, he says, if you take to heart everything that I've said for 15 chapters, but somehow you seek to implement that absent of love, you've totally missed it, and you gain nothing. Always pursue the way of love. And then he goes on to drive at what appears to be another disconnected topic at hand, which is gospel leadership. Verses 15 through 18, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. If I have a son, I think I'm going to name him Fortunatus Maximus Vizzini. That just sounds, that name is just awesome. There are just some terrible names in the Bible, but that name rules. Um, the, the, first, the first converts in, in Achaia, it's interesting. Um, they asked the question that, that I brought up. Uh, several weeks ago as we talked about spiritual gifts. If you were around, you remember I said, um, the goal is not so much to ask what are my gifts, what gifts has God given me, but rather to ask how can I strengthen the faith of others? 
And as you ask that question, those gifts will actually be brought to the surface um, with a healthy motive actually driving those gifts to the surface. The, the first converts in Achaia asked that type of question, how can we strengthen the faith of others? They looked around, they saw needs, and they got their hands dirty for the sake of the gospel. And what does Paul say? He says, be subject to such as these. Give recognition to such people. That That's Christian leadership. That's who we want leading the church. Those who work hard, those who labor for the sake of the gospel, those who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty for the sake of the kingdom and making much of Jesus. That some people get into church leadership, either one, because they're glory thieves and they think they can use the church as a platform to make much of themselves. So if you ever see that in the leadership of this church, uh, tell someone. If you see that in me, tell someone else to bring that to me. But make it known. That the goal here is not to steal glory from the one true God, but rather to make much of Jesus Christ as ultimate. Some people get into leadership because they're glory thieves in the church. Others do it because they think church leadership is easy. And those people are either lazy or dumb. It's not easy. You can ask my wife about that after the service. But it is rewarding to see people strengthened in their faith. What Paul says is recognize, submit to those who will exhaust themselves for the sake of the gospel. Stuart Alliott, a British preacher, says it this way. I find this very helpful. He says, There are too many people looking for some great thing to do for God. And the people who look for some great thing to do for God almost always end up doing nothing for God. The person that God uses is the person who says, I will do anything for God. However humble, however mundane, however unnoticed, however undramatic, however apparently insignificant, I will do anything for God. He says, you can be certain that anybody who has true spiritual leadership in the church is somebody who started and still is a servant of the church. That way, God guarantees that his servants work for his glory and not for their own self-esteem. That many of you are getting your hands dirty for the sake of the glory of God, even in the context of this church, and maybe you feel like what you do is mundane, and it is most certainly not. It is actually a pathway to true church leadership, and it sets an example for those who are to come who will be the future leaders of this church as you do that. Be mindful of that. How can you strengthen the faith of others? Always be asking that question as you learn who you are in light of how God has gifted you and created you. And then Paul closes with a number of greetings in verses 19 through 24. He says this in verse 19, The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. That Again, this is Paul's way of saying you're, you're not alone in this. You're not on your own. There are others in this fight with you all over the world. He, he actually brings them back to their roots here. Um, this is Priscilla and Aquila that Paul's talking about. Remember, uh, if you were around in the beginning of this series, that when Paul showed up in Corinth in the first place, he, he was looking for an answer to three questions. Where can I work? Where can I live? And where can I preach the gospel? And Priscilla and Aquila helped answer two of those questions, giving him a roof over his head and giving him a job. And in fact, Romans 16, Paul tells us that Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for my life, Paul says. That this couple is a huge reason that there's a church in Corinth in the first place. That Paul's giving them an expansive view of the gospel at work. That we're a part of something bigger than us. That this church exists because other congregations of this one cross point church were planted before us and, and helped to send us out. I was not here in the beginning. 
There, there was a different man who came and planted this church in the beginning to get it off of the ground by God's grace with others who rallied around them. Some of you are, are still in this room so that those of us who have now come along to build what was founded can, can see great fruitfulness, that this is bigger than you and me, that there's something that God is at, at work uh, on, on a level that's much bigger than us, and yet he uses every one of us um, at an individual level. So we want to be mindful of that and be encouraged in that, that that there are those outside of this room that are for us, that want to see this church move forward and more people meet Jesus and more people grow in the gospel. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Anybody heard a youth group kid try to take that one out of context for his own gain? That statement is clearly contextually specific. I mean, there are parts of the world where people still do greet with a kiss on each cheek, right? That's not America. If you walk up to me and try to do that, you might get punched. Um, If you walk up to my wife and do that, you will get punched, right? We don't do that in our culture, but there is something in this for us that that, uh, the, the, the broad implication is that we're to be warm and welcoming as the people of God. And I think we are for the most part. I actually think that's a really strong element of this church that uh, I hear often from people uh, who are new on the scene that they felt welcomed. Uh, they felt the grace of God present in this place. Um, they felt the love of God poured out as people engaged them. And, and I would say, um, you know, even over the course of time and having being, uh, been here, that I, I've, I've continued to feel that, that it wasn't just a facade for first-time visitors, but rather that that is a, a value that I see in place. And so let me encourage you and say, keep doing that. There never comes a time when, when you just cut that off and go, okay, now we're going to move into cold indifference toward people. Right? The gospel doesn't compel that at some point when the church gets to a certain age. You, you always want to be warm and welcoming. So, so let's keep kindling that fire because it's there. It, it, it's, it's a flame, and that's a good thing. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Um, Paul oftentimes dictated his letters to a, a secretary uh, who would put pen to paper, um, but he also found it important to put his stamp on the letter for a couple reasons. One, for apostolic authority purposes. He wants to make clear, hey, I saw the risen Jesus as an eyewitness. I'm an apostle, and I'm putting my stamp on everything that's been written thus far. These are my words. So you have that element of authority, but also just simply the love of, of the people pouring out forth from Paul. It would be like if you... Um, if you bought a card at Hallmark and you didn't sign anything, you just sent the font that someone else created and said, there's your card, right? Paul says, no, I'm going to put my signature to this and make clear that I love you, that, that there is a personal touch to this as I'm signing this myself. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, if anyone has no love for God, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. That Paul drove at this in verse uh, chapter 15. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. That uh, if Christianity is a lie, that we're of, uh, of utmost to be pitied uh, amongst all people on the planet. That our lives are sad and pathetic if we've devoted them to something that isn't true. Paul says at that point, we're, we're accursed. And it's interesting that he he says what he says in verse 22 to a bunch of professing Christians. That should sober us. You go back to the beginning of the letter, Paul says to the saints in Corinth, to those professing to follow and know and love Jesus, that even people in the local church, if they don't truly love Jesus, if they're just going through the motions, if they're just living in the land of cultural Christianity, checking their boxes, um, they can be accursed. You can do that and, and, uh, and be 
uh, not uh, under the banner of, of the gospel, which is why Paul says on a number of occasions throughout this letter, wake up, wake up. Arise out of your drunken stupor. It's time to, to open your eyes and see the glory of God. To see the glory of God at work in your own life. To see the gospel on display at work in your heart and in your mind. A pertinent question coming out of a verse like verse 22 would be, how, how do you know if you belong to Jesus? And I think Paul answers that at the very end of the verse. That if you belong to Jesus, you can confidently declare with the apostle Paul, our Lord, come. That, think about it this way, because this one used to trip me up uh, growing up uh, as I thought about uh, Jesus returning. Um, If you're single and Jesus returns today, it's not devastating that you never got married. If you're married and you haven't built your family yet, it's not devastating if Jesus returns and you never get to do that. If you're married with kids and they're little It's not devastating if Jesus returns today and you never get to see them graduate high school and go off to college and get married because Jesus is better. That's what Paul's saying. Like If Jesus returns at any moment, that's a win. It's never a loss for the Christian. That That's a normal prayer that you can pray if you're a Christian. It should be a normal rhythm. Come Jesus soon. That's a normal prayer of someone who loves and follows Jesus. Not just when times get hard. But at all times, we can declare that through all stages of life. And then he closes by, by bookending everything that he's been saying. He began with the grace and gospel of God, and he ends with it in verses 23 and 24. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That, that the gospel is the good news of God's grace and love, that, that God so loved that he gave his son, that Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live, a perfect, sinless life, because he loved us. He knew we couldn't do it ourselves. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins because he loved us. And our hope for salvation doesn't lie in us, in our efforts, in our merit. It lies in the person and work of Jesus, in God's grace. We put our faith in the person and work of Jesus, and and God saves us by grace through Faith, that's what Paul's driving at. And the grace and love of God that he's lavished upon you now compels you to direct that towards others. That's why Paul can say, grace and love be with you. Let me leave you with this because I I think this is crucial as we close out a particular book of the Bible that we not um, make this context when we gather on Sundays the only place where we experience the word of God. This is fascinating. Um, John Piper made me aware of this several years ago, and I'll share it with you. And hopefully it'll compel you to want to open up the scriptures as we disperse. If you notice uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.3, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 16.23, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now this is crazy. You can fact check me on this. Um, If you look at all 13 of Paul's letters, every single one of them, in some capacity, Paul begins with grace to you. And then he begins to unpack what have become the very scriptures, uh, the very uh, breathe out word of God. And then at the end of every one of those 13 letters, he says, now grace be with you. That, That God's grace is extended to you as you spend time in the scriptures. Every time you pick up your Bible, you're engaging God's grace to you. 
that the very words of these 16 chapters of the Bible are God's grace to you, Paul says, as he begins to, to unfold these 16 chapters. And then as you put the scriptures down and step out into the world, God's grace goes with you in light of your time in the scriptures. That, that as the Holy Spirit has been at work in you through our study of this book of the Bible and whatever part of the scriptures that you're studying, now the declaration is, may God's grace that he's extended to you now be with you as you go. That as we've spent time in 1 Corinthians for several months now, God has been pouring his grace out upon you, giving his grace to you so that now you're meant to go with that grace as you leave this place. That that if you've ever asked the question, you know, uh, what, what would it look like to experience God's grace in my life? You know, do you desire that? Do you desire to experience the grace of God at work in your life? Very simply, one of the ways that you experience that is by simply picking up a Bible and reading it. It's re- God really made it so simple that we buck against it sometimes. Like, I don't know, that just seems like it should be a little bit more complex than that. The Bible is God's grace extended to you, even on days you don't feel like it is. Because God loves to lavish his grace upon you. And and thus he's given you his very word. So my hope is is that you'll experience God's love and God's grace. Not just as we gather on this place. I'm not not the pope. I'm I'm not the high priest. I'm not here to disseminate the scriptures for you. And this be the only place that you encounter the word of God. um, And the grace of God through his word. Um. My hope for you is that you don't settle for a one day out of seven grace-saturated life. And so as we leave, because God wants more for you than that, as you wake up tomorrow, engage in the scriptures and expect, anticipate that God wants to pour out his grace upon you through his word. We're going to continue to be about God's word as we jump into the new year. In January, we're going to plow through the book of Jonah from start to finish. It's going to be awesome uh, if you have... Uh, friends that are doubters and skeptics as it pertains to Christianity and the Bible, bring them. Because I grew up a doubter and a skeptic. The first time I read Jonah, I thought, seriously, giant fish swallows a guy. Really? We're going to believe that one? And so I'm going to come at it from that angle and drive at some of the doubt and skepticism and unpack why we should believe some of these things that sometimes we bristle against um, or just simply uh, take at face value but without really diving into why, why do we believe that and, and how can we then take that forth. So January is going to be a great month for us um, to invite people in and to see God's grace at work through his word as we move forward as the church. In a moment, we're going to take communion. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Um, we're, we're going to sing through a song, and that'll be a time for you to just kind of sit with, uh, with God's word and um, ask God what he wants you to, to take from this by, by the work of his Holy Spirit in your life. And then uh, when the time is appropriate, uh, we'll call you forth, and you can take the bread and dip it in the cup. That's how we do it here, the, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As you come... Just think about the grace and love of God lavished upon you through the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that some even on Thursday as we paint a picture of the reality that that you can't have Jesus taking on human flesh without keeping in mind that he was born to die, that all of that is connected. And we're going to have this sweet picture unfold for us in a few days as we gather as the church on Christmas Eve. Let me pray. God, again, thank you for your word for your grace to us. Help us to see your word as your grace to us. I know oftentimes uh, we can pick up our Bibles and um, 
the, this feeling of expectation is just not there. Um, and yet it doesn't make it any less your word. It doesn't make it any less a means of your grace to us. I pray that as we go about the next few days, um, that, that we would sit, even particularly with um, passages like uh, Luke chapter 2, um, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, where, where we see the birth of Christ, and that uh, we would experience your grace poured out upon us as we read um, about what we celebrate this time of year as the true meaning of Christmas. God, we love you. Uh, we thank you for bridging the gap to us because we couldn't bridge the gap to you. You came, you dwelt among us, uh, you took on human flesh. Uh, you know every one of our hurts, uh, you know every one of our joys because you've experienced them all. And um, God, we thank you for coming our way and, and making a way for us to be restored to our very maker. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. Pray that you would continue to be made much of uh, as we continue to sing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.